And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. The only podcast you need for your business. Let's do this. Welcome to the Sales versus Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Scott. Join me as we explore and demystify the latest trends, technologies, and strategies used to achieve massive growth and 10x businesses. I'll be sitting down with sales, marketing, and business leaders to dissect what's worked for them, dispel myths, and deliver actionable insights that you can use to ensure repeatable, sustainable, and predictable revenue in your business. Welcome to the Sales versus Marketing Podcast, where we speak with sales, marketing, and business leaders. I'm your host, Scott, and I am super excited today to be sitting down with Kenny McKenzie, who is the Chief Product Officer at Predictable Revenue. Now, if you are in sales uh, or if you're just in tune with uh, all things uh, sales and marketing and business, you've probably heard of Predictable Revenue, uh, whether or not it be the term or the book or the organization where Kenny works. Uh, Predictable Revenue was founded by Aaron Ross. Now, Aaron Ross is a little bit of a legend in the sales industry and sales circles. He was the individual who was responsible for building out Salesforce.com's sales framework. So he built out a process called Cold Calling 2.0. This essentially helped increase Salesforce.com's revenue by over $100 million, recurring revenue by over $100 million, um, which uh, Aaron Ross then used to write the book, Predictable Revenue, which helped companies understand the process that he, uh, he implemented at Salesforce as well as also built out the organization Predictable Revenue, which now acts as a consultancy service to help organizations do the exact same thing. So uh, Predictable Revenue obviously acts as a consultancy, but they also help uh, find product market fit for products, unbundle and unpackage what companies have done and rebuild out the entire sales organization uh, from the ground up and really just act as an outsourced uh, sales department, sales expert, sales u- business unit, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they're incredible at what they do. Now, Kenny uh, McKenzie is the chief product officer at Predictable Revenue. So Kenny is a serial entrepreneur. He's had several successful businesses, founder and CEO of businesses that he has started in the past. Uh, he has uh, moved from various advisory roles to high growth successful startups uh, before signing on full time as chief product officer at Predictable Revenue. Uh, Kenny is not only responsible for the continued and ongoing success and growth of the organization, 
Um, but he brings a very, very interesting lens through which he views sales and, and insights that can help companies truly find proper product market fit and, and exponentially scale. And he does this, and, and this is shown through the products and services that Predictable Revenue now offers to customers. So uh, I really, really hope you enjoy this interview. Um, this was an incredible interview, uh, and, uh, and Kenny was a wealth of knowledge. So grab a pen and paper, uh, sit back, relax, and, uh, and let's learn a little bit from Kenny McKenzie, Chief Product Officer at Predictable Revenue. Thank you again for listening to the uh, Sales versus Marketing Podcast. Um, today, I have the Chief Product Officer of uh, Predictable Revenue. Kenny McKenzie. So Kenny, um, thank you so much for, for joining me. I really am excited about this. Um, I think, My pleasure. Yeah, I think we've all, uh, if you're in the sales arena, you've heard of predictable revenue in one way, shape or form, regardless of whether or not it's the book or the company or whatnot. Um, so I guess uh, give us a little bit of a rundown of what predictable revenue is, and then we can sort of dovetail into who you are and what you're doing. Sure. Um, so Predictable Revenue is um, <clears throat> basically a company that helps people with outbound sales development. Uh, so we help people do it themselves and or we'll do it for them. Um, and that's basically everything from developing the strategy that you're going to proceed with, um, like the market strategy to the execution. Um, and, you know, from when it comes to execution, it can be, you know, what channels do you use? Like, how do you write your messaging and all those sorts of things? But it's also how you build your team and how you, you know, onboard your people, how you recruit, how you do performance management, um, that pretty much everything to successfully uh, fill your pipeline with outbound sales. So where did predictable revenue come from? Um, go ahead. Yes, sir. Yeah, so uh, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, Aaron Ross uh, wrote the book in 2010 uh, following his experience at Salesforce. So he was um, a pretty early hire at salesforce.com um, and helped them develop their uh, outbound sales development force and basically establish sort of their standards. And, uh, you know, that's where he had discoveries like, um, you know, basically the transition of doing things like cold calling to switching over to email uh, as an outbound channel. Um, back then, that was pretty novel, um, as well as uh, splitting up the roles of a salesperson into things like a sales development rep and a sales researcher. So like more role specialization and more of like sort of an assembly line sort of system in, in sales. Um, and then he wrote the book in 2010. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a fairly it was quite a successful book, of course. And uh, meanwhile, um, one of the other co-founders, Colin Stewart, uh, was building a company, basically building a CRM from the ground up uh, a few years after the fact, um, struggling to basically commercialize that um, and finding it easier uh, when he spoke to his clients to basically just help them with sales development and basically doing outbound sales campaigns for them kind of as a way to bootstrap along the way. Um, and then that ended up just becoming its own company. So he kind of let go of the whole CRM plan and and just sticked to um, building uh, software that would help uh, with automate, you know, automate yeah. and streamline sales development. Um, and then I forget when exactly, but I think it was like around 2014 or so. Um, I guess actually before that, Colin had been reaching out to Aaron and you know asking for advice and sort of like hounding him on podcasts and just kind of following him around, with, you know, asking him questions and stuff. And uh, you know, long story short, is they ended up uh, merging into one company. So, um, so that so I actually didn't know the second piece. I didn't know I I, I know the story of Aaron Ross, and I think that um, uh, he's almost like a a little bit of a celebrity in the, in the sales world, right? Um, yeah. But I didn't realize that that was the collaboration of the two coming together that eventually formed the, the company, Predictable Revenue. 
Yeah. So like the actually like doing the outbound sales as a service um, and like do it like we basically do sales development as a service like that aspect came from from Colin Stewart and sort of him, uh, you know, just doing the usual grind um, and uh, and then basically combining, you know, Aaron's experience and sort of wisdom in the space with Colin's hustle, uh, and, you know, kind of got us to where we are today. And and where are you today? Where is predictable revenue? Um, you know, even like uh, in terms of team size, uh, ARR, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Sure. Um, well, team size, I think we're, uh, I think we just crossed 40 employees. Um, we are based in uh, Vancouver, uh, California, and um, I, I mean, technically we have someone in Ontario um, and also Mexico. We have, uh, we're in two different cities in Mexico. Um, so we're spread out quite a bit. Um, and yeah. Um, and I'd say like, you know, I think, I don't know if I should share from, from, from an ARR perspective. Yeah, I think. I'll leave that out. I don't know if you want to edit that out after. But. No, no, that's fine. I don't mind that you guys are private. I was just sort of getting yeah. the idea of, of the scope of the company. Do you have any, um, uh, so for people that don't know the company to sort of put a little bit of perspective about it, uh, do you have large uh, clients that you're working with now that, that we would know, like names that household names? Um, probably not. No, most of the, like our sweet spot is yeah. um, basically like mid-sized firms that, uh, their, their deal size is 15 K and up. I mean, we used to say 10 K, but I think, you know, with sort of just the economy evolving, uh, inflation and whatnot, like these days it's better to go a little higher. Yeah. Um, B2B of course. And generally like they have a, uh, like a reasonably new offering that's like somewhat novel in the market. So it's an exercise of really informing the market. Yeah. So there's an already pent up demand. There's people who want progress in a certain area and there's this new product or service that can help them make that progress. And we're, you know, bringing that to them. Um, and that's so, kind of what I wanted to get out. So I wanted to sort of put a little bit of context around um, who you actually are targeting. Cause I want to sort of circle back to how you help these companies that are, are more, a little bit more early stage and, and what you see they need the most, but we can sort of go back to that later on. Cause that's probably going to be part of um, some of the services you provide and some of the, the expertise and guidance. So I think that's really important. Um, yeah, because I want to I want to sort of get some lessons learned out of working with some of these uh, early to mid stage companies, um, because I think that the ability to take a product to market and to be a consultant in an early to mid stage uh, requires a much more robust skill set than sort of um, going into a, a, a finite business unit within uh, a large uh, corporate environment that already has all their processes and procedures in place um, and maybe just, you know, doing some very, very targeted sales training. Now, that could be a, a, a little bit of an assumption, but I think that it's, it's a lot more moving parts um, that yeah. you have to sort of take into consideration when you're working with a small organization because I've personally worked with some and, and it's, uh, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of work, yeah. a lot of things going on at once. So. That's yeah, it. I think like there probably are some brand names that uh, people would recognize actually now that I think about it. Um, like we've been working with Red Hat recently. Okay. I'm sure there's others, but to be honest, like, um, yeah, I just like they're not all coming to mind at the moment. And also, uh, you, you know, some of them have agreed to case studies and stuff like that. And they're on our website and some, you know, are we're in process with them. And I don't know if it would be appropriate to share. So no, that's totally that dude. That's totally cool. Um, I, yeah. I totally get it. Um, so let's let's you know go back into into you like uh who's like who's kenny what have you done like and how did you how did you get set up with uh, predictable 
Sure. So um, my background is I started a company um, and it basically it originally started sort of as a, as a bootstrap like way. I was just basically doing um, software development uh, consulting. And so like my background is actually as a developer. Uh, I did that for a couple of years and sort of grew up to the point where I'd grown by, beyond myself. I had sort of more work than I could do my, on my own, um, but I didn't want to just develop a service company. I wanted to develop a product company. So at the time, um, there's a lot of hype around wearables, um, yeah. particularly Google Glass. It was actually before the hype. It was sort of I saw the hype bubble coming um, and I uh, Funny enough, I got the one of the basically the first Google Glasses to kind of like become public uh, out in the world. And at the time, everyone's super curious about it. So we got our hands on it. And uh, long story short is we we developed a company that uh, or we built a company that uh, developed software for um, wearable tech uh, helping industrial enterprise. So our sort of vision was let's uh, you know bring superpowers to sort of the industrial worker and uh, you know, give them access to more information, give them you know better communication, that sort of thing, hands-free communication. Um, and so we worked on that company for a number of years and ultimately we struggled with the product market fit side of things. Um, we did a lot of, you know, we did almost, we did over a million dollars in revenue spread out over a few years. Um, and they're all pilots and things like that, but we just sort of struggled to get to that, that next step. And there's a lot of reasons for it. And, you know, I've learned a lot from that experience, but ultimately what happened afterwards is I, uh, realized I really want to understand this product market fit thing. Like mm -hmm. I don't want to like, I, following that experience, I, I learned, um, that, you know, the average success rate of a product startup really launching a product in, in any context, um, is about 5%. And uh, so I thought to myself, am I going to do this 20 more times before I'm successful and still maybe not make it? Yeah. Or am I going to like really figure out what's going on here and sort of hack the odds and, and be able to, you know, increase that chance so that maybe I got a 50 percent chance or something like that instead um, by, by cutting through sort of the randomness and actually understanding the first principles. So I kind of went on a quest to understand what are the first principles of product market fit. And I uh, did about nine months of research into that and then started consulting. Um, just on your, and just that's on your I own? I, I, yes. First, okay. Yeah, just on my own. At first, I did a lot of like experiments, uh, like kind of testing different sort of business model ideas and things I had like around that space, uh, helping startup founders, helping product managers with product market fit, um, trying to like test my boundaries. I did like 100 and some odd uh, customer discovery interviews over about nine months and uh, wow. kind of packaged it all up into a research report, which is you know, um, I shared with a couple of people. It's a little bit personal, but uh, you know, if there's someone who's really interested in it, I'd probably be willing to share it. And, that, that's really uh, impressive work, man. <laughs> it's a lot of, it's a oh, lot of effort. You. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, yeah. And then I got into consulting and started working with predictable revenue sort of in a product manager capacity. Um, and I thought it was just an incredible place for me to um, like, they have a great culture here around sort of entrepreneurship and taking initiative and, you know, um, kind of picking your own responsibilities and things like that. So I got the opportunity to, you know, come in as a product manager and then sort of, um, just, you know, roll with kind of the th how the company was evolving and sort of evolved into more of a service manager and, and eventually sort of took on responsibility for how we develop our services, how we sort of develop, you know, develop new services and also keep our services up to date and sort of like how, how we manage our innovation. So the, the, the you know, the I also manage our director software development. So like what software we're building to kind of support our services. So the the title chief product officer, it's more like chief service innovation officer or something like that. But yeah, well, I was, like, I was curious because um... You're you're uh, a born developer, and you built out your own you built out your own like SaaS solutions and whatnot, and you've or, or and a variety of different tech solutions. And now you're working in something that seems to be uh, like a service a service provider, almost like a consultancy. But obviously, you have like software solutions on top of that. So I'm I'm curious how um, I'm trying to think of the best way to to phrase this this question or this statement. Um, 
how somebody with a traditional developer mindset that's very like logic driven and and process oriented uh how did you find um working and building out sales processes did you find that it was something that came naturally to you or did you find that the the traditional uh, personality that's in sales um doesn't see eye to eye with somebody who is more logic or process driven um, i'm just sort of curious as to your take on that because i don't talk to a lot of um developers that were originally developers shifted into um a, like a sales consultancy uh, position and you're obviously managing the whole uh service and you, you mentioned service and mm-hmm. and product portfolio for predictable revenue so i'm just wondering what your your take is on that and if there was like i guess lessons learned as to how to sort of bridge that gap yeah so i mean heck of a lot of reading i think i read about 60 books over the last like two years um uh, not all on sales development, but you know, definitely a handful of them. Um, and so just kind of consuming all the theory is like a big part of that. So that helps me build sort of like mental models, um, like sort of places to put the information. Um, and, and again, like I was really trying to understand the first principles of product market fit and I, you know, kind of, it's, it's funny, it's a pretty minor thing, but like one of the sort of inflection points in my story is a friend of mine recommended, uh, this book called a competing against luck uh, by Clayton Christensen. And, you know, it was one of those books I read and, but it was one that kind of like, it was, it's about jobs to be done theory. And at that point, you know, I was really kind of struggling with what's going on here, like with my last company and, uh, and it kind of, it went click for me. And, you know, I've been, I've done a lot more, like I've done a lot of learning about market research and things like beyond that, but there's something about jobs to be done theory that just really helped me, um, understand these things. And so I've been basically applying all those things I learned during that sort of research phase to sales development, like merging the two things. So first I learned about sales development and I learned about all the first principles of that, or, or at least the current best practices. Um, and then sort of, I tried to apply the first principles I'd been learning about product market sort of fits and, and sort of the theory behind that. And like, essentially like what motivates people to buy things mm-hmm. like what, like, yeah, what motivates people to buy things. And that's what jobs to be done is kind of, kind of is, is it's like, uh, there's it kind of it's a, it's almost a coin with two sides like on one side of it it's um how to make things people want and then on the other side it's sort of like how to make people want things and so at uh you know at uh, predictable revenue like when i first approached it i really want to understand how to make things people want and at predictable revenue i've been sort of using what i learned to uh, you know, essentially may help make people want things, but you know, that's not, maybe it's sound like really what it is. It's, it's associating yeah. what a product or service can do with what someone wants to do and, and helping connect those dots in a way that, you know, if they get everybody wins. So, um, that's kind of our philosophy here, or at least mine. I think that the reason why I was sort of bringing up that point about how you sort of transitioned is because I think that what I've seen at least personally is a, a classical issue that, that sales individuals have selling to more technical individuals is they can't bridge that gap of, of the of the way that an individual processes and, and consumes information. And to be able to reverse engineer that, I think, is a huge value add when you're going in um, to help a company build out their sales force, because I think that a classical sales individual definitely has a little bit more of, a, of an issue just from a personality point of view, um, selling to like a CTO, a director, IT, whichever. Yeah. I mean, I think like, it's funny because in the early days, you know, I started out basically as a product manager, managing our software team, directing them what, what to build and, you know, started talking about, Hey, why don't we have a service that does that? Or, you know, what if our service did this instead? Or what if we stopped doing that? And, you know, because basically my role, like our, my users that I was trying to serve were our service providers, yeah. like our consultants. And so uh, they were my user. And so after at a certain point, I started realizing, okay, but the customer like our users isn't really the customer. Like I need to, it was actually a really interesting, you know, dynamic from a product manager perspective because I 
I couldn't just look at the users and kind of optimize what they wanted to do. I actually, it would be, because uh, then I'm sort of, it's a local maximum problem. Like it's a local optimization problem without looking at the whole company. So I kind of took a step back and I realized, okay, my role would be, I'd be better serving the company if I look past just what the users want to what our customers want. And then sort of took some responsibility for what our users are doing and then made that easier. So like, what should they be doing versus what are they doing and make what they should be doing easier. Yeah. Um, and, and then my sort of knowledge around the product market fit theory helped because one of the challenges that we face is, you know, we bring in new clients and then we have to unpack their product market fit. Like we have mm-hmm. to unpack who are their customers or who are their potential customers? What does their you know, product or service do? How does it help them? Um, and you know, often our clients, like the reason maybe they're, they're hiring us to help them with sales is because they haven't figured those things out. That might be one of the reasons why they're struggling or maybe they just haven't even started. And uh, so getting really good at that and really fast at that and being able to sort of like build processes and systems to be able to do that like in a, in a scalable way or at least in a repeatably predict, like a- Yeah, predictable. Uh, yeah. success, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, was, was, has been sort of a largely my focus um, and sort of developing services that support that or building that into our existing services. Um, and I think that like the sort of systematic mindset, I mean, in those early days, like I would get roped in a lot into like, um, can't like where we had like one of our service providers that was maybe not happy with how the campaigns were performing for one of our clients that were selling a very technical solution. So, you know, maybe they're selling like, some database automation software or, you know, something for DevOps or something to manage big data or, you know, all sorts of different solutions. We had, uh, you know, one that, that like would automatically generate APIs. And so, it, you know, our, our, our service providers wouldn't necessarily know how to speak to that audience, just like you're saying. And so they'd pull me in and, and, and I'd help them and we would kind of come up with creative ways to talk to that audience. Um, so, uh, yeah, there wasn't a component of that, but I think like at the end of the day, you know, you really basically have, it kind of boils down to, um, you know, are you, are you bring someone or are you bring something to the, to the person that they want? And then are, do, are you credible enough that they'll believe you or they'll listen to you? Yeah. And, uh, there's kind of two, and, and I, I kind of default to the logos pathos ethos, like, you know, time old way of looking at it, which, you know, you basically have sort of the credibility of your character. You have like an emotional appeal and you have sort of a logical appeal. And technical people like logic. Yeah. So yeah. you can lean heavier on a logic appeal for them. Whereas, you know, depending on the persona you're reaching out to, you might lean more on, you know, look at the results we got someone else or, uh, you know, some sort of emotional appeal, appeal like, hey, I you know, read this post and it really inspired me or something like that. Like, so there's all these sort of like when we break down, when we reach out into someone on outbound sales, like what are the components that actually go into that message? And like we kind of really thoughtfully craft each one. And it really, to me, it boils down to either it's like relevant to what the person wants or it's sort of like building equity in our relationship. Well, that's, uh, with so, them. so you're kind of going in that direction anyways, which is, which is what I wanted to speak about. Um, so what, does, what is the, the total summary of what predictable revenue can do for somebody? And the reason I want to go into your product offering and your service offering is because it's all focused on, on helping sales, driving revenue. Um, just optimizing what a company already has. So you mentioned a couple things, but let's just go over like the broad scope of everything that you guys can do. And then we can sort of go into what's most effective in certain scenarios for companies and sort of like, uh, I guess, top takeaways that you've learned for your like your core clientele. Sure. Um, so broad stroke is we do, uh, you know, we help people find successful sales development. So basically we help people fill their sales pipeline using outbound sales development. 
And, uh, you know, when you look at the gamut of marketing and sales activities that are designed to fill the, the pipeline, you know, primarily we're operating on email and sometimes on social media, usually LinkedIn, and we're doing cold calling, like that's the majority of what we do. Um, so, you know, you compare that to something like pay-per-click ads or, you know, like another, what another marketing agency might do, like that's one of the differentiators or one of the sort of things that makes this more specific. Um, and we're, but we, you know, we help people in two different ways. We either basically will go in and help them sort of diagnose what's not working if with their current situation. If they already have a sales development team in place, um, we'll basically help them fix it and get it running like best practices and and on producing results. Um, everything from you know, are you targeting the right on right on? Sorry, are you targeting the wrong audience with a you know right or wrong message? Like basically getting a strategy nailed down to actually like optimizing the execution of the team and making sure like the right metrics are being tracked. You got your dashboards up, you got the proper role specialization, you got the right compensation plan in place. Like really, if you want to build your right, your, your own team, we will make sure that you're doing that to the best possible practice like, that you can. Yeah, and, yeah. uh, but that's, uh, you know, that's one half of the business and it's, um, for the, in terms of like our revenue, it's the smaller half. Um, the larger half is we, it's sales development as a service. So basically we act as your sales development function. And so we basically just book meetings into your, your account reps or your account executives calendars. And, um, yeah, and, and we, we act as an extension of your sales team. So, you know, we'll meet weekly and we'll, we'll craft the strategy. We'll craft the campaigns. We basically do everything for you. We do write all the copy, um, and, um, and then execute and, and book meeting meetings into your team's calendars and, and, you know, obviously have an iterative loop where the meetings like aren't right. If they're not getting the right prospect or not like, um, set up in the right context, we, we constantly iterate and we have like a variety of ways of delivering that. We also have a service that uh, we call outbound validation. It's very new. It's actually a service I developed that, uh, you know, we've actually, I've had a lot of help with the team on, so I can't take all the credit. Rob Heaver's done a lot of great work too. So shout out to Rob. Um, but it's, uh, it's basically a way of like what we do is we create like um, a theory about um, a variety of market segments and we create like a basically it's like a psychographic theory. So we essentially say, you know, we think that this specific group of people like these titles in these companies that have maybe anything that we can target, anything that like we can dig up into from a data provider. So like any targetable attribute, basically, we think that these targetable attributes will be correlated to these wants. So we think that they'll want these things. And it's not about wanting a product. It's about wanting some contextual progress. It's like wanting to get a job done or wanting to accomplish a goal and facing some obstacle. I mean, that's how we think of customer pains. It's like you have a goal or some contextual progress you want to make and you're facing some sort of an obstacle that's preventing you from getting there or making it harder than you wish it was. That's what we are trying to find. And so we create theories of these and then we break them down into like explicit hypotheses and we test them and we'll test them as fast as we can. So we launch like up to 40 unique campaigns in two months. Um, and what we find is that the results are almost always like a power law distribution. So in other words, we come up with all these different ideas of like groups of people to target and, and like ways to start the conversation with them, talking about what we think they want. And um, usually like less than 10% of our ideas will produce more than 90% of the, the results, like the meetings booked or the pipeline. So uh, what that tells us is that you know, like basically you, you got to iterate and you got to try lots of ideas. It's like a B testing, but it's like a through Z testing. It's like, yeah. we just sort of like, it's not that we're blasting a bunch of people with the same message. Like we're crafting very specific personalized messages along the way, but, um, but we're doing it like at a very large scale. So we're kind of like scanning the market almost with like these personalized 
message messages. So that's that's a really it's a really cool um, product, and I don't think that a lot of uh, I don't think a lot of companies have the resources, the capability to do that effectively for their there's outbound sales message. Like they they do it with traditional marketing, right? They'll do like the A/B test ads, or they're uh, exactly. But I don't think I've never heard of somebody doing that uh, at scale outside of maybe doing, you know, like two potential email, uh, writing two, two different uh, copies of emails and seeing which one has the higher response rate. And that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll do that. But we, we basically realize, hey, if we're going to learn this, like if we're going to get over the hump with a client of understanding what it is that their target market wants, we need to like 10x sort of the volume of ideas we're testing. And so, yeah, it's very much like, I mean, I've done AdWords before and things like that, like paper cook ads. And it's very much like setting up like a whole bunch of, of ads, AdWords, like Google AdWords or whatever. You know, you come up with a whole bunch of different ideas, you put them up there and then it pretty much just optimizes towards whichever ones are converting. It's like that, only the, the cool difference here actually that makes it really uniquely valuable, even for marketers, is that we aren't just like tracking whether or not someone clicks, we're actually getting qualitative responses from people. Like they're actually replying to our emails and telling us things. So even if someone says like maybe or no, or like we, every response we get, we classify as either positive, neutral or negative. And then we have like a secondary set of classifications where, you know, it would like the more specific context around it. So, you know, neutral might be like, hey, I'm looking for more information or, you know, this is interesting, but not right now. Check back with me in a few months or, um, you know, like. Uh, thanks. I've collected your information, but we're pretty happy with the current vendor right now. So it's like there's might be an opportunity to try and go back and dig deeper. Um, you know, neutral is, of course, like not interested that sort of th or sorry, negative is like yeah. not interested, that sort of thing. And positive is, you know, they maybe they ask for more information in a, in a far more sort of uh, uh, like excited sort of yeah, way yeah. or even like they, tone you know, of the, the reply. Right. Like that could be exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're, we're just classifying these things and then we summarize all the results. And so, you know, certain campaign ideas will produce more positives. And, you know, and, and we can find things like, yeah, we learn all sorts of things based on those quality of answers. And it also informs us because they might say something like, oh, you know, no, I don't know what this is about, but you should talk to so-and-so in this department. And then they might give us an idea for a different job title. And then we go, oh, we didn't know about that job title. And we go and look it up in a data provider at LinkedIn or something. We're like, holy cow, there's 4,000 yeah. people with this title. And then yeah. we realize that's the people we should be targeting. So we get this qualitative feedback in addition to the quantitative that you wouldn't normally get with like a pay-per-click ad sort of really broad sort of yeah. scoped A-B testing um, that helps us uh, navigate through the the uncertainty and find where is the the sort of market fit. That's why that's why I see so much value in in your experience as as somebody who was more lot like that's so it's all coming together now because what the, <laughs> this is a product that you were sort of championing. Obviously there's other people yeah. that supported it, but um, the things that you did in your own company and then the things that you did after the fact when you're speaking about like this this research study that you put together now you're now you're really just applying that to to sales and and that's yeah. really what has you know I, i'm sort of speaking and putting words into your mouth i'm um, just sort of like contextualizer people that aren't as heavy on um on on the product side but this is really what you're doing you're just ma making this process so that it's it's very easy to understand behaviors outside of just uh, outside of just throwing stuff at a wall and hoping it sticks. So now exactly. you're now you are like you mentioned like now you have qualitative be like data points that actually are tied to um like they're tied to sentiment as opposed to as opposed to just like you know CPM or CPC or something like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, that's very cool. Um, and you that's go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, and like that service like is really designed to help nail down who, what's the right, what's the ideal customer profile? Like who are the right, what's the right segment of the market to be focusing on at least right now, like yeah. the lowest hanging fruit. And what should we be saying to them to like most efficiently start the conversations? And that's just like, 
that's your strategy basically. And yeah. then we take that and we will stack more channels on top of it and we'll like execute on it. So, you know, but it's kind of the precursor. If we, what we've learned is that like, if you don't, if you don't get that right, then no matter how well you execute, it's sort of like you're multiplying zero. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, like if you start with like a 1% conversion rate with sort of a sloppy execution, and then you nail the execution, you multiply that significantly. But if you start with like a 0% conversion rate or like a really abysmal conversion rate, because you're not really, you don't have the right strategy, you're not targeting the right people with the right message, then, you know, no matter how well you execute, you're going to basically just be throwing money out the door. So, so you're like, you're codifying a product market fit. I'm trying to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. <laughs> so, so what, um, that's, that's really, really interesting. And that's a really cool service. And I've never heard of anything like this. I've heard of people that obviously do like uh, act as like an outsourced uh, sales in a variety of different capacities, or obviously lead generation to some extent, but never something that uh, it, you do. You, what, what is your feedback from customers that have used it uh, or have, is it, is it, I don't know how new it is. So I apologize if it's very, very no new. Problem. No, we, we started in May and, um, you know, the first couple clients we did it with, like we were sort of figuring out as we went, uh, and I'd say it really kind of started solidifying in like June, July. Um, I think we've had five or six clients complete it, um, so far. And, um, I think more than half of them have gone on to continue working with us in a, you know, a, a, yeah. a larger capacity. Uh, one I know was extremely like, I actually did the exit interview and they were, they felt that like they, I think the NPS was like nine or something, uh, or maybe like it was really high. Um, but, and it was actually a little bit surprising because what we found, like they got some traction in some of the ideas we had. Um, but the problem was the deal, the market segment had, that was like mid to lower market and the deal sizes were too small. Mm -hmm. So we found that there was essentially, we didn't find a, um, viable, uh, like ROI sort of strategy for them. Like basically the cost of requiring a customer yeah. versus like the margins on their product or service uh, was, didn't work. And so at the end, we basically invalidated that we could do sales development for them, which was kind of the point. Yeah. Call outbound yeah. validation. Yeah. Um, but uh, I just, yeah. So that client didn't end up continuing to work on us, but they work with us, but they basically went and said, we got to go kind of reevaluate our business. And if we well, can that, address that is, the that is so, that is so important for an early stage company because you know, exactly. you, you mentioned it and it's even a problem that you saw in, in your first business where, yeah, you got a million, you know, uh, revenue booked or, or build whatever in over a course of so many years. Um, but is that, is that a scalable business? Is that something that can truly, uh, you know, 10 X like get to, get to, 10 million, 50 million, 100 million, whatever your exit is. Um, and it could be that the, the, like the numbers just don't work. Yeah. So. And so, you know, the, the most, the one, the ones that I'm actually most excited about are, are like near the end of their engagements right now. So I'm really hoping that, you know, I'm sure they'll, I'm quite confident they're going to be happy to give us a case study. I'm sure we'll get at least one or two case studies out of yeah. them. Um, but like, because we keep getting better at it. Right. And, yeah. um, so I think, yeah, I think we're up to like, we've had, we're on our like eighth or ninth client now doing this. And I think we just kicked off our ninth. And I'll tell you something, got, like, if you, if you validate this, if you, if you can continue to validate and, and get better at this, at this product, um, you're going to have like uh, investors, venture capitalists, family <laughs> office, they're all going to be knocking down your door because now you have a way of finding um, uh, if the company has a clear path to revenue or not. Yeah. Which, well, we work a lot with private equity firms. Yeah, um, yeah. Like that's, that's big. Like we've been, we've been working with private equity firms actually before I joined the company and not just in this capacity, just because we're, when you do have a product market fit, we're so good at executing. I mean, historically, yeah. uh, that we're, you know, you basically just, you, you give us a, a strategy that works, we'll execute on it and we'll just like fill your team sales pipeline with leads. Like we've, 
we have some clients that, you know, we've generated like, like over a hundred meetings a month for and things like that. Um, they're not all like that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, most of the P- private equity uh, clients that we get are because they've done their due diligence. Yeah. Um, usually the clients that, you know, are more on the struggling side or is because they don't have the product market fit sorted out. So, um, but yeah, so we're hoping now that that'll basically expand our opportunities to work more with sort of the series a series b stage companies that you know aren't necessarily like as robust as a private equity sort of play um in terms of their knowledge of their market and things like that but still help them see comparable success like that's ultimately what we're working towards and and do you have out of the um, out of the few customers that you've worked and and sort of actually executed it or or implemented this this product for um do you have uh best i guess best practices for what works and what doesn't like what should companies be looking for very high level like agnostic of industry um sorry can you uh, like in what context so so when somebody's looking for a product market fit um you're oh, you're, you're validating certain components of of what works and what doesn't um yeah. agnostic of industry what have you seen is something to look for in somebody who is like maybe a, an early stage a bootstrap or a series a well i mean there's product market fit is like quite a beast of a challenge yes. and like it's, it's the biggest challenge it's the thing that knocks down startups more than anything really um and they might say oh well we ran out of money or oh, we had a disagreement with the co-founder but there's so many examples of companies that nail the product market fit and they you know they're one of the co-founders slept with the vc and yeah. they are constantly <laughs> yeah. at each other's throats and the con- the product's constantly crashing yet somehow they're still successful it's because it kind of goes back to the mark Andreessen post of original likely originally defining product market fit it's like the market pull is the thing that matters so um but it's really difficult. And so I think it, the, to answer your question, like it's a kind of uh, to answer it succinctly is challenging, but I'll do yeah. my best. OK, so, OK, I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so basically, I know it's I, I know it's a huge question. I just I, yeah. I just want to know, like, because you see so many data points, like you must start to see trends about what people should at least look for. I'm not saying they should definitely try They shouldn't try this to do this on their own. They should go and hire you. But I mean, oh, no, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I wouldn't even suggest that there's going to be a lot of companies that we wouldn't be a good fit with. Yeah. Um, you know, B2C for one or just B2B that has a smaller deal size. Yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, so uh, basically, you know, there's I forget the guy's name. I'm drawing a blank. Um, but basically, there's uh, someone who put together this survey um, where essentially if you, you know, you ask people like how like, uh, how upset would you be if we, if our service no longer exists or our product no longer existed? And I think it's, if, if it's like more than 40% say that they'd be like, you know, really upset, then you kind of ha- have product market fit. So that's like one way of looking at it. You mm-hmm. know, the Mark Andreessen, um, way of looking at it is, um, basically like if you, if, it's like, if you can't, if, if people are coming to you faster than you can like keep up with like onboarding them, you can't, you're drowning in support requests. You're, you can't keep your servers up because like you, you're like your, uh, sort of usage is way beyond anything yeah. you'd scoped for. And so your servers keep crashing. You can barely keep up money's coming into your bank account faster than you can like spend it. And you're like, Oh my God, every time you look at the bank account, there's more and more money in it. Like that is their definition of product market fit, um, or, or his. And yeah. Um, but I mean, like those things are kind of interesting indicators of like, if you get there, but like how the question is, how do you get there? Yeah. Like that's the hard part. And to me, like, I don't know, like, to be honest, like I, I don't, I, I, when it comes to this question, I still have a bit of imposter syndrome because I've spent so much time studying it. Yeah. I actually realize how much I don't know. So I'm going to, I'm what I want everyone listening to kind of take this with a grain of salt because it's like, funny because I, even you're, you're self-aware of what, you know, what you know, and what you don't know, but you're still probably more knowledgeable than most people listening to, to what constitutes a, a good, uh, a good product market fit, or if you're on the right path. 
Yeah, but I am mindful of um, like the Dunning-Kruger effect. And, yes. <laughs> you know, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. So, uh, you know, I, I think what I'm just going to share here is going to be constructive. Um, I'm pretty sure. But I just want to say that there's probably some, you know, serial entrepreneurs gone VC out there that know like way better than I do. So um, the way I look at it is, you know, it starts with a qualitative understanding and then sort of and then evolves into more of a quantitative understanding. And so the very first thing you I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. 
This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professional to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text Success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work, and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Really want to be doing is, you know, isolating, trying to isolate a group of people who are all trying to do the same thing, who all want the same thing. And the way I think about that using jobs to be done theory is like, you know, they're all trying to get the same job done and for similar reasons in in the same context or very similar context. And the funny thing is, you know, as a marketer, you tend to look at things like, you know, demographics, firmographics, like like all these. uh, But it's it really boils down to like what people want. And so it doesn't matter all these demographical attributes that people look at. Like those are just sort of like proxies for the actual thing that matters, which is what do they want? So um, so that's number one is you got to find a group of people who all want the same thing. And the easiest sort of best way to do that, frankly, is having conversations, interviewing them and not and, and then and, and doing it right. Like. 
there are all sorts of traps. Like you want to avoid cognitive biases. So you mm -hmm. got to approach this like a scientist or like an investigator. It's like you think that there has been a crime where, you know, all these people have been wronged in some way and you're trying to fit, you're trying to like investigate the culprit. Like who's, who's causing all these people, all this pain, right? You can't go into it being like, I want them to like my idea. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to yeah. like leave any ideas you have behind and really just try and understand like, what does this group of people want? And then, and then work from there towards a solution. And uh, so like Ash Maria is like really good at sort of uh, articulating like, uh, he, he, he's gives this analogy you know, um, when it comes to startups or building new products, it's like you got a you got a door like your market is like a door with a lock on it and you're building a key. And so what most people do is they'll build a key and they'll go door to door to door to door trying to open doors. Like, what are the odds that you're going to just build a random key and be able to go and open some random door that you walk up? I to? love the analogy. That's a great analogy. Yeah, it is. I, I got to yeah. credit Ash Murray for that one. Yeah, that's um, really good. But yeah. If you pick a door and you study the lock and you basically act like a locksmith and then you design a key specifically for that lock, you can open the door. And um, sometimes I think that, you know, there's also the there's these waves of technology that come. Right. And, and whenever there's like a new wave of technology and it sort of goes from the like over the it's over the hype cycle and it actually gets developed and it's hitting that like plateau of productivity or whatever. And it's becoming viable like those. That's now there's this whole new suite of opportunities for um, being able to unlock sort of new ways of solving problems. And so that's like a, being able to combine those things as part of the equation. And so you might discover a real market opportunity, but like the way to solve that might not come for another eight years or something, yeah. especially if you're looking at a specific type of technology. So that's the second sort of challenge is being apprised of all these things. That's why it's so hard is because like it's a very, very complex challenge. Yeah. And then you run into the risk, too, of the market being too small. Yeah. I mean, you want to basically you want to try and pick like a job to be done, a sort of a contextual progress people want to make. You have a very small group of people who really, really, really want to make that progress. Um, but if you help them make that progress and you basically make it easier to make that progress, more and more and more and more people are going to also want to make that progress. Yeah. So um, you basically develop a solution that so addresses an existing, really compelling market need for a very small group of people. But by doing so, it uh, makes the market grow because the more people who see, oh, wow, they were able to make that progress. I want to make that progress, too. And so then it kind of well, that, like, that's a blue ocean. Right? That, that would be the blue ocean strategy where you're, you're technically building your own market. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and usually when you have like a product flying off the shelf type product market situation yeah. or uh, a product market fit situation, it's because you've, you're building a new market. Like it's rare that you're going to go into a really noisy market and do that unless you've got something really novel and compelling that like allows people to make some whole new type of progress. Otherwise, why would they be flocking to you if there's all these comparable competitors? So very true, um, and that—that's really what I wanted to sort of unbundle because, of course, from, it's always funny when you're so deep into when you're so deep into a, a product or or um, uh, like a even like an, an industry, it's very hard to remove yourself and and understand that every little bit of knowledge that you have is actually quite relevant to people that aren't as engaged or as involved. So I asked you, I asked you about product market fit, and what you gave over was like. Perfect. Like that's really what I wanted to to get people to take away. But for you, it's like, oh, this is just like skimming the surface. This is like this is like not even like you know for this is not even um this is not even close to actually um really really uh capturing everything that and of course it isn't. But the the whole point is how many people don't even do what you just mentioned? Where oh yeah, yeah a lot. It's right? not. I wouldn't say it's common practice. I wish it was. I mean, yeah. when you look at play, it depends where you look. I think there are certain organizations, you know, in California. You know, I think about things like Techstars and Y Combinator yeah. and there's like really good quality accelerators that where they, you know, this is what they preach and this is what they hold the, 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 the companies accountable to. 
Um, then again, there's a lot of accelerators out there that are founded by people who you know, haven't had a lot of success, don't really know and maybe aren't keeping up to date on the theory. And so they aren't preaching that. Um, and so if you are in an accelerator and they're not like hounding you to constantly be going out and interviewing your customers and things like that, you know, you might not uh, be getting the best of advice uh, yeah. because I de- like under like there's this is one thing I'm confident in is like if you want to have success beyond just blind luck, you need to understand your customers really well, yeah. even whether you're an engineer or, or, you know, unless you have someone else in the company is doing it for you as a co-founder or whatnot. Um, but basically, yeah, you get a gut out and talk to people and really understand what they want. That's, you know, that's the uh, that's half the equation. And is that do you find um I was going to actually just speak to one other thing that that predictable does, and obviously that's um, sort of unpackaging and then and and optimizing what a company's already doing. Is that the number one thing that you find companies haven't done properly? Um, just just getting that real feedback, or is there other parts to what you unpackage that you also think is like a huge inhibitor of of a company's success? Yeah, I mean, like, okay, because our clientele is not necessarily really early stage startups like we tend to work like we're only going to be working with them if they've done some significant funding yeah. in some cases they maybe don't have a lot of customers so they are kind of pre like a pre-product market fit for sure and and product market fit these days i mean it started out as a very specific thing which was like kind of that 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 um story i told where you know like the money's coming in the bank account faster bank account faster you can spend it and you can't keep up with the demand and all those things that's sort of like the explicit definition that was the original definition of product market fit but today it's treated like a spectrum Right. And so it, it isn't like there isn't this like clear threshold per se. It's like something you work towards. But, you know, using that original definition, most companies don't ever see product market fit yet. They can still be viable, successful businesses. Mm-hmm. So um, but what we to answer your question, like what we see as like the most common struggles, like it varies dramatically. Um, it's often con- uh, execution specific and it isn't necessarily like some like we get a lot of clients that you know they've tried to do outbound sales themselves and they weren't able to so they came to us uh but we also get a lot of companies that were like you know their their advisor or somebody told them hey we should do this and then they're like well how are we gonna do it they go into research they find us and they're like okay let's just get them to do it yeah or like let's get them to come in and help us build it um so it's not as if they like were stuck on something and then we help them get unstuck it's just you know we decided to work with a guide right from the start um yeah. And, and but I do think that like the earlier stage the company is, of course, the more the product market fit side of things becomes a problem. And so best practice, yes, is to do lots of discovery interviews and really understand your customers and like models, like model them with psychographics. And, uh, you know, that becomes your theory. And then you go and you systematically test that theory at scale. And so, you know, there's it starts with these qualitative conversations, but then you need to basically scale that up somehow, like test it at a larger scale. And so then you're, you're switching from that to, you know, you basically have two options. As far as I'm concerned, you have surveys and you have experiments mm-hmm. and uh, surveys are really hard to get right. Like they, they are certain situations where they're the best to thing to do, but um, they're, they can be really expensive and they can be really, really hard to get right. And there, I feel like there's a lot of, most people out there don't really know how to do surveys well consistently. And that's me included. I really struggle to get surveys right. I think the best surveying method I've ever come across that was really useful and constructive on a couple projects I did is called uh, something involved in something called uh, outcome driven innovation, which is like developed by Anthony Alwick. And it's um, very, very robust and can be quite expensive. So it's a bit cumbersome for an early stage startup. It's kind of not practical. It's more for like, you know, Johnson and Johnson launching a new toothpaste or something, and they're going to invest like $50 million into it or whatever. So they want to like really make sure that they get it right. Mm -hmm. It's great. And if we could somehow apply that process to 
like streamline it and make it more approachable and like more um, economical for an early stage company, like that would be amazing. And that's something I think a lot about. So the best, the next best thing I could come up with was basically this, this um, experimentation sort of process where instead of doing surveys, you're still creating sort of this model, this psychographic model, but then you're testing it with sort of uh, engagement experiments in the same way that you would test like, uh, you know, the language in, a, in an ad, in the targeting in an ad, we're doing that, but we're just, just doing it to start conversations. And then, so we get like the, the quantitative learning and the qualitative learning, like I was saying before. Yeah. yeah. So it's not really where you want to start. It's more so the next, the second step, as I see it, the first step should be interviewing customers. And we've thought about doing that for our clients, but my opinion is that it really should be the CEO or like the founder of the company or whoever's ultimately responsible for the customer success um, should really be the person who does those interviews. And so I don't know, I've toyed with the idea of us doing them, but I think that it's just, it's so much better if, if the actual company themselves does it. Yeah. And then, so, and then once, once they have, once they have, once they have started that process and they, and they just can no longer scale it, that's when you can bring in yeah. other, other tools or whatnot. Yeah, like if they if they let's say interview a bunch of people and they come to us and they're like, okay, we think you know this group who wants it for this reason and this group who wants it for that reason and and they you know basically bring all this all these ideas to us, then we can break those down and test them at scale like way more efficiently than they'll be able to do themselves. But when it comes to the actual interview, like yeah, we might be able to execute the interview a little better, we might be a little less biased and things like that, but we're not going to be like exponentially better, I don't think. At least, and, and also I just feel like this is something that at least one of the founders in every company should be good at. So. Yeah. By doing it for them, we're kind of doing them into service, in my opinion. So yeah, that's another uh, reason why I don't really want to do that. Do you find um, uh, just a different? Because I, I can understand. Um, sorry, let me premise. So when I first understood predictable revenue as somebody who does work with sales consulting, I had no idea. Um, and I'm not. I'm not probably the best indicator because I, I haven't personally looked into you as much as maybe someone else has, and I haven't done my research. Um, to somebody who's actually going to hire you and onboard you. Um, but when I looked at predictable revenue, um, I assumed like sales consulting. So I think that when you assume sales consulting, uh, the sales consultants that I've worked uh, with in the past are a certain type of teaching somebody how to uh, do outbound or teaching somebody how to um, uh, or, uh, converse with customers. Like there's all these different types of sales coaches, um, but I've never really seen as data-driven a practice as yours. Uh, from any any sort of out outsourced sales coach or or any any type of of company that does it, it or plays in the same space. Um, and uh, what I wanted to sort of bring out from that is what are some of the the worst practices that you've seen um, from hmm. competitors that you would like to sort of like red flag uh, for people who hire sales right. consultants um you know when when what what would somebody say when they're interviewing a consultancy organization that should make them like run for the hills right um well okay so i mean i mean there's there's the whole like when you look at sales you've yeah. got the front end which is like the research into prospects and to your market and isolating the right people to reach out to and then you've got like starting those conversations to so reaching out and like basically getting people into the sales funnel uh, and then, uh, and then you've got sort of the, the managing of the relationship and the closing. And I think when you, when I hear sales, uh, consultancy, they could be consulting at any point in that process. And we have done consulting and we can do consulting at the later stages, like the closing and stuff. 
because we are good at that stuff. But like really our specialty is at the front end or the top of the funnel. Yeah. It's like, how did I deflate your market and get those people in your sales funnel on a consistent basis? So that way you are consistently hitting your sales goals. Um, and, and, you know, and, be, and we do like when we do consultancy, we, we're breaking down breakpoints and things like that around along mon- like uh, tracking these things so that yeah. you can isolate where is the bottleneck. So things like that. But so. And then my and my sort of focus has been on the product market fit and then the filling the sales funnel. So I, as I'm not the right person to ask, I think, when it comes to like if you bring in a sales consultancy to help yeah. your close rate, I don't really know what would be good or bad and yeah, how to evaluate that that well. There's other people in the company that would probably be able to answer that question really well, but just not me. Um, so for me, I think I, I, what I can do is I can focus on the sales development side. Yeah. Sure, so if yeah, you're okay. yeah, if you're. If a company is basically evaluating hiring like a sales development agency or like someone to help them do sales development, um, for one, like there aren't that, I mean, okay. So if they're a consultancy, I'd say the best thing would be just uh, get case studies, get referrals, like, like ask them for like three customer, uh, sort of, uh, referrals and then go and interview those customers and ask them how was the experience? What was it like? Because it's a whole bunch of things. It's like, did they get the success out of it? were they easy to work with? You know, uh, were they, did, were they reliable and all that sort of like, there's so many aspects to the consultancy side of it. But if you're hiring a sales development agency, that's basically going to do it for you. I mean, for one, it's like, am I going to get success? So yeah. you, you could still look at the like case studies and referrals thing, but I think there's a better, there is another thing that's kind of what you're looking for here. So if they, if, if the agency you're going to work with is like cheap, <laughs> so like you're doing it based on cost yeah. and in, and you, what you're losing for paying less is you're not going to get uh, copywriting or you're, they're just going to like, yeah, they'll write the template for you, but yeah. they're going to basically interview you or talk to you and be like, okay, so what should go in the template? And then they just put that in the template. Um, and so if you end up with like, if you talk to them like, how, what's the copywriting process like, you know, how do we decide who to target? And, and if they're giving you answers that are very high level and much, very much sound like, well, they're basically just going to like interview you and ask you and then put it, that into the campaign. Yeah. Um, that would be a concern because like what we do is we, we, I mean, of course you need to be asked, like they have to unpack everything, you know, but what we do is we unpack everything, you know, and then we sort of ex- mix our experience into that. And we will challenge you on like writing a copy. Like you don't really like the, the clients that we struggle with the most are the ones who like want final say on all the copy and are constantly yeah. trying to change our copy after we've written it and they're making it significantly worse. You know, they're taking out the part about what the customer wants and putting in like more about their features or their product that nobody cares about and, yeah. and stuff like that, you know? And, um, so if they're kind of going along with that and being like, oh yeah, no, we'll do, we'll put whatever in the copy that you want. And they're not standing around and kind of using the challenger sale type technique where they're mm-hmm. trying to educate you on sales development during the sales process. Like, wow, like before you've decided to work with them and really helping you understand like where might you fall down and, and like why we do it this way and all those sorts of things. Like that would be what concerns me. Yeah. I no, would think to look out for. That's a really, that's a really, really good answer actually. Um, uh, and I think that I think that I've seen that before in some consultants that I have worked with. They kind of are just like a sounding board, um, and they're reiterating everything that you're telling them, and then they're just sort of building out a process around that, which really you should be able to do yourself if you're any yeah. sort of uh, founder or or sales leader, anyways, right? So, yeah, I, I mean, I, you're just going to get the execution in that case, yeah. and so if the strategy is wrong, you're just going to be stuck with it, and yeah. you're going to not get the results you want and you're not going to know if it's because of their execution or because of this bad strategy and you'll probably assume it's because of their execution or you'll just go oh i didn't work and then you'll go oh sales development agencies aren't trustworthy or they don't work yeah um but if and by working with us i mean one of the things we do you know depending on our service we're locking you in for months 
Yeah. Right. Because it takes time to figure these things out. We know that like you're not going to get it on the first try. And like the reason we developed that service, we try 40 ideas in two months is because, I mean, we do a month of workshopping to build out all the theories and everything. And then we do two months of campaigning where we do 40 experiments in two months because we know like it's better to do 40 experiments in two months than 10 experiments in you know six months. Yeah, we're going to learn more faster and we're going to get to the right strategy faster. Whereas like if you hire a sales agency and they give you like two campaigns, there's another they're month to month. That's another kind of red flag because that means they're like they're they're trying to compete on uh, getting clients that are not willing to take make the commitment. And they're like afraid of taking that risk of committing. And so they'll basically there's no way they're going to be able to figure it out in a month like unless they get extremely I've actually, lucky i've seen i've seen i've seen even worse um i've seen people that uh, commit to like a session or a day and uh, with no follow-up and it just blows my mind how they think that that could ever be successful or or even under i don't even think personally i could understand enough in a day to come up with a strategy let alone understand and then teach over in the same day um it's just a, it's a ludicrous idea in my opinion but um and i think that uh, the the confidence in your own abilities to lock in a customer for six months and and again challenge them and and say this no this is not going to be a short term fix this is yeah. this is this you are building a business for the rest of your life like slow down do it right the first time um, I yeah. think that's uh, incredibly important to to understand um, do you I wanted to um, I don't really I don't really have much more on terms of the the products that uh, that predictable revenue actually delivers. I think you did like an awesome job in sort of breaking it down, and I, I really do appreciate it because I think that people that are uh, either uh, revenue leaders or again like founders, I think that um, working with some of these outbound strategies that you you've developed now, I think, can be incredibly important. Uh, and like you said, a lot of successful companies uh, may not have ever found product market fit. Um, but they may be considered successful. But I think I would challenge those leaders and say, how much more successful could you be uh, if you did use a service like what what you offer? That's so. Yeah. I, I think that um, for for this for for predictable revenue and the services, I, I I think that we're good. Unless you wanted to add anything else, I just kind of wanted to wrap up to understand like a little bit more about you. And it won't be won't be much more. But is there anything that I missed about? Uh, the services that predictable revenue offers that you wanted to that you wanted to go over um no not necessarily i mean i think i'll just say that like we're we're pretty picky about the clients we bring on um because we've got so much experience doing this and i'll tell you like our culture set up in a way where you know every week we do this thing called beers and tears uh where we're, it's like at the end of the day <laughs> on friday it. and uh you know the things that we're sharing are basically uh, you know, there's a variety of things. If we're dealing with a technical challenge that's affecting a bunch of people company, that's like a tier. But, you know, the things that usually dominate those conversations are client closed like a million dollar deal from a lead that we gave them or, you know, this they're up to, you know, X pipeline or something like some sort of, you know, something that stands out. Uh, and sometimes even like if we have a client that, you know, two months in, they close a 50,000 deal with us. Like that's still amazing, too, if they got a really short sales cycle. Um, it's not necessarily size. It's more like context. And then it, or if a client's struggling. And then, you know, they bring out like, I, you know, I'm struggling with this client and, you know, I haven't gotten any, any meetings in the last like four weeks or something like that. And we sort of, so for one, we really feel that pain when the client's not doing well. And so we've scrutinized and scrutinized, like, what does it take to, for a client to do well? Uh, and we have gotten pretty picky about which clients we bring in. So we don't bring in ones that are going to struggle. Um, and also when that happens, we kind of pile on a bunch of resources to try and turn it around. 
Um, but we've had situations where even despite all of our best efforts, we just can't uh, find success. And so we'll let them out of the contract early and things yeah. like that. And it almost always boils down to lack of product market fit, which is kind of back to all the other things I shared. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the only thing I want to say is it's not really about predictable, predictable revenue, but it's just like, you know, the way I kind of look at outbound sales now is that you have like the strategy side of the equation and the execution. And um, on the strategy side, you've got like targeting, uh, messaging and channel, right? And it's kind of marketing link, like it's the way of yeah. looking at it from a marketing perspective. And then on the execution side, you you know, have all the tactics and things like how you set up your team, the tools you use, et cetera. It's like how you optimize the execution. And um, the, the, the targeting and the messaging, uh, or I should say, so the, the channels and the tactics or the channels and the execution, like you can read books, you can go online and learn and like read about what other people are doing. You can listen to podcasts like this and, you know, learn all sorts of techniques and, and, and tricks and tools and things that will help you better execute. And, you know, maybe say, you know, something like, oh, I, you read Critical Revenue in 2010 and you go, oh, I shouldn't, I should diversify away from cold calling and also be sending emails. Right. And then nowadays you might learn or read like, oh, I should also be like reaching out to people on LinkedIn or I should be like posting videos on LinkedIn or on yeah. social media, or, you know, things like that. Um, I should be developing content, uh, con uh, should be developing uh, content or I should be yeah. doing a podcast. And, you know, so like from a channel perspective, like you can always learn from other people. But when it comes to targeting and messaging, you can't learn that from anyone else. It's unique to your business. You have to approach it like a scientist, come up with a theory and test it. And you basically learn how to optimize that through iteration by testing it. So that's kind of the message I want to leave with people is I think um, half of the equation is about, you know, just following best practices. And then the other half of the equation is about uh, really figuring it out for yourself. And, um, and that's kind of the theory behind how we approach our services. That's yeah. awesome. That's really good. And I think that, um, again, it, it brings it back to best practices to, so people can continuously see success in their business. I think that a lot of people will get sort of inundated with all these different channels and, and strategies to put their brand out there. But if you haven't developed what your brand is and your core values and your messaging and your voice and all that, um, it's just going to be noise and it's not going to be, it's not going to resonate with anybody. So I think that that's, that's super important to do um, and, and understand that it has to be you, not, not just throwing stuff out there and hoping that it sticks again. It's all about doing it uh, thoughtfully. Um, yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to wrap up just to, to help people that are listening um, through their career progression uh, your, your CPO, um, if you were going to look at yourself when you were like 14, 15 years old, uh, sure. were you anything, were you anything like what you are now? Um, and if, if yes, awesome. But if not, <laughs> like, how did you get to, how did you sort of mature yourself and grow into who you are? Um, uh, okay. So when I was 14, I was definitely, uh, really lazy. <laughs> So, um, work ethic was a big one. I actually like way back in my career before I was, I mean, I was coding for fun as a hobby. Um, but I wasn't doing it professionally. I was actually, um, like I went to culinary school and I was like a fine dining cook and chef for a while. Yeah, so I did about three, yeah. Yeah, I was, did about three and a half years of that. And so I had like, not literally Gordon Ramsay, but like a Gordon Ramsay equivalent screaming in my ear whenever I slacked or did anything stupid. So it's kind of like boot camp. Um, not that I've ever been in the military, but I, I liken it to that. It's like yeah. my little boot camp experience. Uh, it really kind of hardened me and, and, and straightened me out and, you know, gave me a good work, work ethic. So I think that was a bit of an inflection point for me. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I think beyond that, something, you know, I didn't used to do, but I do more now is like when I went to school, 
uh, when I was in school and I don't quite know exactly what high school or elementary school is like these days or probably depends where you grow up or what school you go to. But, um, it was very much like, you know, teaching you what to think, not how to think and, um, you know, memorizing stuff yeah. and, and not really building mental models or like a true deep understanding of how the world works. And I think that everyone would be better off if everyone endeavored to try to really understand what's happening and approach things more with curiosity and an open mind, uh, rather than sort of like anchoring themselves in a specific opinion and like hanging on to that, um, meditate, learn to meditate, uh, take care of yourself, exercise. Um, you know, if you're stressed out, don't revert to escaping from the world. Uh, try to, uh, do things to take care of yourself, flush the cortisol out of your system and going for a run or something like that. Um, yeah, basically take, take care of yourself and try and approach the world like a scientist, no matter what you do, mm-hmm. where you're actually trying to understand things. So you're kind of coming up with ideas of how you think things work. You come, you know, you, you have your own little, um, theory or, or hypothesis, and then you go out and you kind of test it and you just do that over and over again and do get so good at it that you do it subconsciously. Um, and just try not to, um, be afraid of failing or being wrong. Yeah. Like the thing that holds people back the most is being afraid of failing or trying or being afraid of being wrong. Um, and then, you know, or, or escaping from the world when they're, uh, when they're stressed out or anxious rather than embracing it and, and meditating on it. Very good. Um, that's, that's incredibly important advice. Um, thank you for that. Uh, anything that you would, what's, what's one lesson, um, that you would tell your 20 year old self out of everything you just mentioned that, uh, that was the most impactful, just like one key takeaway, if you can sort of boil it down. Uh, be humble and really understand what humility is. That's yeah. good. Uh, I don't know. These days I didn't like, I read, I'm a big fan of Ryan holiday. Yeah. So probably read Ryan, read one of Ryan holiday's books. If you're 20, I think that's probably a good time in your life. Um, and that sort of, uh, segues into the last thing I want to ask. Um, where do you, where do you go to learn what resources, podcasts, audibles, uh, people, what's your go-to? Books, obviously. Um, yeah, I read a lot of books. I like watching uh, YouTube video lectures and uh, interviews and podcasts. I don't tend to listen to podcasts. I tend to listen to books. Um, I mean, I listen to the odd podcast, but the majority of my listening time is books. I'll usually have three books going. One is like, you know, uh, intermittent. I'll burn through uh, a few hours in a weekend when I have time kind of thing. Uh, one is uh, next to the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll chip away like one page at a time. And, uh, and then one I'm listening to while I commute. And, um, and so that's the majority of the source of it. And then sometimes in the evenings I'll unwind and I'll, I'll watch a video on YouTube or something. And then they're usually like somewhat educational. Um, I really like, uh, like I, I like learning about like artificial intelligence research mm-hmm. and things like that. So two channels I really like are, um, two minute papers yeah. on YouTube. Um, and there it's basically they, they outline like the most recent, um, research papers that are like really interesting in a little video. And sometimes they'll include like little like video demos and things like that of what it is. And it's mind blowing what's going on right now. Like being able to synthesize, like, like you get five seconds of recording of my speech and you can create a synthesis that then you can type whatever you want and I'll say it. That's crazy. Like stuff like that. Yeah. Like it's just like the world is about to change in a dramatic way. And that's like, your sort of, uh, you know, like how you can see ahead of that is yeah. like looking at, and, and another one is I, I really like, like Lex Friedman. Yeah. Um, he does interviews around artificial intelligence, some really cool ones. He like interviewed, um, uh, Ray, uh, Ray Dalio. Yeah, recently. yeah. Yeah. Ray Dalio. Yeah. 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 Um, a Bridgewater. Yeah. Yeah. And he's interviewed like Elon Musk and, um, some really, some leaders and like some physicists and leaders in artificial intelligence research and stuff like that. So I like stuff like that. Just like, like he, he, he's a, he's a good, uh, he's a good source to go to, to, uh, to learn and to just, uh, listen to interesting people. 
Yeah, exactly. Like I think so. He um, he's like an MIT professor, and he interviews some pretty interesting people, and he talks about all sorts of different really interesting topics. But he tends to centralize it all around the advancement of artificial intelligence. Right. And so, if you want to like understand how the world's evolving and like what the world's going to look like when every when AI fully develops, um, which no one really knows for sure, but like we're all figuring it out as we go. Um, but if you want to be a part of that rather than sort of like get blindsided by it, um, those are two really good sources. And you know, um, for people that are for pe- I, I would hope, but I, ho- I, I hope no one has the mentality that um, I don't need to focus on that um, because that's not my core business or that's not my that's not my core job function. But I, I think that um, I, I've bought into this and I, I think that it's if you if you learn enough about artificial intelligence and, and where the world is heading, um, you are kind of already seeing that if you're a marketer, if you're uh, an individual contributor as a sales as a sales rep, if you're a business leader, it doesn't really matter. It's going to mm. impact you regardless. So. Yeah. I, to me, I, I think it's the most important thing happening in the world right now. Yeah, and it would be like uh, not it'd be like ignoring the internet in like the, the late nineties or something, yeah. or like early two thousands. Like yeah. not assuming that that's not going to be a big deal. It's like it's yeah. probably going to be as big, if not a bigger deal. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and uh, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they reach you? Uh, LinkedIn would be LinkedIn. best. Just reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, nine, 95% of the connections I'll accept unless they look really sketchy. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, if you include a message saying you heard me on the podcast or whatever, then I'll definitely accept it. And, you know, just fire me a question. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Awesome, man. Okay. So that's all I got. Anything else on, on your end or is that, uh, is that good? No, I think that's good. I, nothing else comes to mind. All right, cool. So that was, uh, Kenny McKenzie, uh, chief product officer at predictable revenue. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciated the talk. Thanks, Scott. That was really fun. Cheers. Cool. cool. Cheers. Welcome to Scott's Thoughts, where we dive deep into some of the topics that we were just discussing on the Sales versus Marketing podcast. So we just spoke with Kenny McKenzie, and Kenny McKenzie is the Chief Product Officer at Predictable Revenue, and he had a ton of great insights. But I want to, uh, I want to, I want to go deep into two of the things that he spoke about. So obviously, the theme of this. Uh, if you can pull one out, was definitely finding proper product market fit. And one of the analogies that Kenny used, and it wasn't his analogy, um, but I am glad he brought it up, um, was the way that most organizations find product market fit is they have a key. And that key is obviously their product or their widget or their service that they're trying to sell. And in front of them are a variety of doors, okay, locked doors. And the locked doors all represent customers or personas or or different use cases for their product or their widget. And a lot of companies will go door to door to door with their key trying to unlock that door and find a fit for their product. Kenny, through this analogy, reiterates that we have to flip this concept, this this dogma of how, how to find product market fit on its head. And... The analogy goes like this. Instead of having one key and going through a variety of different doors, let's do this. Let's have one door. We figured out that's the door that we want to unlock. And now we're a locksmith and we are going to craft the key. We're going to craft the product so that we can unlock that one door. And that is so important to remember as a founder, as a CEO, but I'm going to take it a step further. And this is something that we didn't really discuss. Um, But I I want to give a little bit of context and a little bit of relevance to people that are earlier on in their career. So they're not a CEO, they're not a founder, they're, for example, a sales rep, an SDR, AE, whatever. Uh, They're an individual contributor and they want to understand how this analogy applies to them. Because 
the first thing you're going to say is, well, I cannot obviously rebuild my product. I already have the product. How does this analogy apply to me and my customers? Okay, so let's, let's think about this. So your job as a sales rep is to bring this product to your customer. And what I think a lot of sales reps do, if they don't have the proper guidance and the proper training, which I would assume, and I've seen personally, is in most organizations, is they're just going to take their product and they're going to throw it at as many different personas and use cases as possible. And this is, this is the equivalent of having one key and multiple lock doors. So let's take this analogy and understand how it applies to the sales rep. I would argue that as a sales rep, you still have to understand who your ideal persona is. And this is something that should be built out between sales and marketing. Um, and once you've understood who that persona is, uh, then you can craft your messaging, your crafting of your messaging and highlighting the features and the benefits and the solutions to your customer's pain points, that is you crafting the key. So yes, you do not have a hand in impacting the product per se. Uh, you have a built product, but the way that you position it, the messaging and the features that you highlight, and not just features, obviously, the way that they solve problems for your customers, that will be you, that will be you building your key, so to speak, uh, to unlock that door that you want to unlock. But you have to know who that target customer is and then you craft your messaging around it. And if somebody hasn't done that for you, if your organization hasn't done that for you, that is something that you can do yourself as a sales rep, as somebody who wants to be successful in their in their role within an organization. And through through understanding this analogy and through building out your messaging to to, to be tailored to your target customer, you will be more successful. Um, as opposed to just throwing everything at a wall and hoping something sticks. Uh, the second point that, um, second of many points that Kenny spoke about uh, that I wanted to go into was the importance of speaking with your customers and getting feedback. And again, Kenny spoke about it in the context of a founder finding product market fit. And the best way to do that is to go out and speak to your customers, get feedback. And once you get that feedback, then you can, if you, if you can't scale that, uh, that sort of that data, that data uh, aggregation and, and collection process on your own, because obviously it's very hard to, um, to continue to do that as your business scales, then you can go hire an organization like Predictable Revenue to help, uh, to help continue to optimize your results as you grow. However, however, I would say that the idea of, of speaking to customers um, as a founder, CEO, obviously very important, and you should be doing that for sure. Um, but as your business grows, let's find another reason for why this is so important, why this concept. If you are a, a revenue leader, you're a director of sales, a VP of sales, uh, a VP of marketing, and you are going into a role, you have tons of experience, you're going into a new organization, and you're just leveraging that experience and you aren't going into the field at all, not all your time, but at all, to go speak to customers, to go get feedback, to go uh, shadow calls, sit in on appointments with your, with your uh, sales reps, and you're just sort of counting on what you've known in the past, you will, one of two things will happen. Either you won't be effective or you won't be effective as quickly as you could be. So I am a strong supporter that if you are especially a revenue leader, I would say marketing or sales, you are, you are going to customers, you're pitching the product, 
you're sitting in on meetings with sales reps, you're getting feedback from the customer, um, and you are using that to improve your own understanding of, of the regular uh, interactions sales has with customers, regular objections, and really you should be able to sell the product yourself. And when you can sell the product yourself and you know best practices, um, it's very hard, if not impossible, to do that without actually selling a deal or two yourself especially as a revenue leader. So I think that you should be out there, uh, you know, at, at the very beginning, getting your hands dirty um, until you feel comfortable that you know exactly how the customer is going to act. And that's when you will be more effective at managing and helping the people that work on your team uh, grow and succeed. So I think that that customer feedback, um, you're going to, the founder is most likely going to be doing it. If they aren't, go do it. But any executive in any new role, Take, take the responsibility on yourself to go get that customer feedback and go speak to customers and go and go improve your understanding of how they actually view your company, your product, et cetera, et cetera. Um, obviously, if you're a sales rep, you're going to be doing that. But I think that it's much more important to do it as, as somebody who's going to be leading sales teams and leading marketing teams and building up messaging to get that honest, uh, real-time, live, in-person uh, feedback. So those are the two points that I really, I really, really wanted to, to double down on. Um, that was an incredible interview. So thank you so much uh, to Kenny and uh, Predictable Revenue for for joining me on the, the sales versus marketing podcast. Um, I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, if you haven't already, please hit like, uh, hit subscribe, leave a rating and any rating school as long as it's a five star rating. Um, you can download this podcast or stream it wherever you can download podcasts. So iHeart, uh, Spotify, iTunes, any any podcast platform. You can also watch this interview on YouTube if that's your style. Um, and as always, I hope everyone has a super, super productive week and uh, they enjoyed this episode of the Sales versus Marketing Podcast. We will speak again soon. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the Sales versus Marketing Podcast, brought to you by ROI Overload, delivering strategy, technology, and insights to both sales and marketing leaders and teams globally. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary.
I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 